My greatest aspirations as a pastor, one of my hopes, is to see the church, at least our local expression of it, realize its potential as a force for good and for God in our city and beyond that. And that is part of the reason that we're working our way through the book of Acts right now, because here we see the early church firing on all cylinders, if you will. In the first century, particularly as the church was really getting ramped up, there were yet to be any limitations placed on it by man. And so consequently, this very pure and unbridled iteration of the church was effective for such a sustained period of time, more so, I think, than probably any other period in history. There just simply hadn't been enough time yet transpired, at least through the first four chapters of Acts, for men to mess it up, you know, to, to transform it into something less than what God had intended for it to be. When we make changes to things in life, in this life, generally we're attempting to make them better, right? We're trying to improve what we have. Uh, I've never heard anyone, anybody say, well, uh, my house is just too nice. I need to, to do some work here, you know, make some changes so it will not be quite as nice. Right? Of course not. How often do you hear someone say, uh, this machine that I, that I own, this power tool, this car, this vacuum cleaner, it just works too well. I need to modify it so it won't run quite as effectively. No, that's ridiculous. We work on things. We tweak things. We modify what we have to try and make it better, make it work better, make it perform better, to make it more effective. And over the centuries, we've worked on the church. We've tweaked things and we've modified parts of it for the most part, I believe, to try and make it better or to make it more effective. But the problem is the church is something that God designed and created and it cannot be improved upon by men. But of course, that hasn't stopped us from trying. And so it is that the church has become something, in my opinion, less than what God intended for it to be. Now hear me, please. I love the church. I love the church. I wouldn't be doing this if I didn't love her. And I unashamedly uh, share with people all the time the good that I've seen personally accomplished through the church. In fact, as I reflect on the church just during my lifetime, and to narrow it down even more just since I've been in some form of pastoral ministry in five churches, including this one, over the past 20 years, in that time only. I've personally been witness to dozens of marriages being restored. Hundreds of wrecked lives set free from drugs and alcohol addictions through church ministries. Thousands and thousands of meals fed to hungry people. Entire villages in Africa given fresh clean drinking water from new wells for the first time. Schools built. Churches built. Bathhouses built because of ministries in those churches that I've been privileged to be a part of. Clothing and blankets given to hundreds, thousands really of people in the bush villages of Alaska. And many thousands of people with absolutely no hope given new life in Jesus Christ. That is a sampling of what I've been privileged to witness just from five Christian churches over the past 20 years. Now multiply that by all of the churches from all the denominations just in our country in our entire history 
But think about that a minute. And then try to name one other organization on earth that can begin to make those kinds of claims. The Church of Jesus Christ has been and will continue to be an unstoppable force for the advancement of the gospel and everything that goes along with that, social justice, all the things we've talked about, until Christ himself returns once and for all and he holds this world to account. And so I want you to know that I recognize that very well. I'm not church bashing here. However, I believe that as we've attempted to improve the church by being clever and creative, we've in some ways degraded the effectiveness of it in accomplishing her mission because we've come to rely on our own ability, in some cases more than we do, I think, on the Holy Spirit. And I certainly don't want to confuse the issue, what I'm talking about. I don't want to imply that we should just wander in here on Sunday mornings with no idea what to do and expect that we're going to see New Testament results from whatever happens. That's not what I'm asserting. God gives us talents and creativity uh, and abilities and intellect to be used for His glory. He gives us the ability to organize and present and prepare in such a way as to lead one another into a stronger relationship and walk with Him to encourage each other and to build one another up. So we need to run the race. We need to strive forward and not give up our efforts by any means. But what I'm simply saying is that the church in the first four chapters of Acts was seeing literally multitudes, thousands of people coming to Christ at times on a daily basis. While those who were already part of the family of God were growing in discipleship in profound ways. It was simple and it was incredibly powerful and effective. And yet with all of our uh, technology and ability today to, to communicate in mass in the world, with all of the advancements in science and archaeology that support biblical Christianity, with the Christian uh, education that is available to more people around the world than ever, with all of our resources and the freedoms to express ourselves in ways that the early church never experienced, when is the last time that we saw results anywhere even close to the early church? With no internet, they had no telephones, televisions, buses, seminaries, churches on every corner, yet they saw thousands and thousands and thousands of people coming to the faith at times on a daily basis. That's compelling to me. Is it possible that with all that we've done to improve the church, that it has actually become something less than it started out as. I believe so in some ways. And the video alluded to looking at the church for what it could be. And that is a part of my vision for this church to see God's potential for the church realized through us. That is something wonderful and powerful that we need to get back to. It's already been realized at least once in history. It's already been done. So why not examine that version of the church instead of trying to constantly come up with you know, a new way of doing it. Obviously, uh, society and culture change constantly. We need to be able to relate contextually uh, to the culture around us. That's very important. I get that. So we're not talking about surface issues here, okay? Not talking about the, the songs or the drums or those kinds of things. How we look. We're addressing what lies at the core of the church and where we spend our energy and our focus. 
Are we trying to improve it or are we trying to realize what's already been defined by God? I've played the saxophone for 34 years. Some of you don't know that, I guess, but that's my main instrument. And so I've really been into the saxophone and into that part of music for a long, long time. And there's a saxophone called a Selmer Paris Mark VI. Chris knows all about those. And it's the Stradivarius of saxophones. It is the saxophone to own. And they quit making them almost 50 years ago. And when Selmer was finished making those, they decided they could do better. So they made a Selmer Paris Mark VII instead of the Mark VI. And to this day, everybody hates them. And so instead of going back to the Mark VI, they made a Super Action 80 Series 1, and then a Series 2, and then a Series 3, and on and on over the years. And Selmer Paris still makes very fine instruments because the company believes that they can continually improve on the design. In fact, I've read statements from the company over the years. They believe that they can constantly make a better saxophone. And they cannot bring themselves to going back and doing it the old way again, to focus on that simpler, much simpler design of the Selmer Paris Mark VI. Without question, the new horns they make today, the mechanisms are more intricate, they're more complex, the technology is by far and away better, and yet there are still professional players all over the world who will not play anything else but a Selmer Paris Mark VI, and they get 30 thousand dollars for some of them. Many consider it a superior instrument to the saxophones being produced ever since. Maybe, just maybe, not everything can be improved. Maybe when God does something, we'd be better off to focus on His design and purpose for it, rather than trying to come up for new reasons for the church to exist. Everybody, everybody talks about the great revivals through history and how they began. But nobody talks about how they ended. You ever think about that? And yet every major revival came to an end at some point because men tried to make it better. Just study the history. Men tried to make them better and they came to a, to a screeching halt. We don't try to add or take away from the Bible. Of course, some people do, but we're not supposed to because it's God's work. It is a complete work. It cannot be improved. And so just as he gave us his written word, he gave us the church. And we're wise to be very astute in our understanding of how he intended that to be from the beginning. So today, as we continue this sermon series, the Acts of the Apostles, we're going to pay special attention to how the church functioned, where they placed priority and what they focused on, and maybe we can learn something about the church and ourselves today. The title of today's message is Accountable, and we'll be working through the first 16 verses of chapter 5 of the book of Acts. So this is actually part one of this sermon, okay? So if you're uh, taking notes, if you're doing an outline, we'll finish part two next week. Uh, today's sermon and next week's then are both part of the same outline. Okay, so next week will be a continuation of today's outline. Next week will start on point two. Last week we looked at the fearless nature of the apostles and the other disciples once they experienced the fullness of the Holy Spirit and His gifts operating through them. And we talked about what that meant. Even though they were performing uh, fantastic miracles and preaching with power and authority, we saw them humbly coming before God 
with one another and seeking him for courage and boldness each time before they went back out to do ministry. And then as chapter 4 ends, we see the early church members giving all that they had to God. They were coming together and selflessly sacrificing everything, everything materially for the sake of the ministry of the church. And then chapter 4 says they had everything in common and great grace was upon them. Such a beautiful picture of the church untarnished by pride and greed and selfishness. Full of power and growing consistently by adding many thousands of new believers. Like I said, sometimes daily. And then we get to chapter 5. Where we see not only the first examples of those attempting to pervert or abuse this beautiful church that God had instituted through the apostles and prophets. But also as a result of that, we see the need for accountability within the church. Okay, And right from the few, uh, first few verses of chapter 5, we see a stark and sobering example of accountability to one another and the need for it in the church. And to be clear, this is accountability within the church. Okay, In 1 Corinthians chapter 5, Paul says to the members of the church, he's talking to the church, He says, I wrote to you in my letter not to associate with sexually immoral people, not at all meaning the sexually immoral of this world or the greedy and swindlers or idolaters, since then you would need to go out of the world. I love that verse. In other words, it's expected that out in the world, those outside the church, for there to be greedy people and thieves and robbers and people with all kinds of sin in their lives, so much so that you can't avoid it when you're outside the church. In fact, he says, you would need to go out of the world to avoid them. I guess that means outer space. But then Paul continues, but now I'm writing to you not to associate with anyone who bears the name of brother. Now we're talking about each other inside the church. Fellow believers, if he's guilty of sexual immorality or greed, or is an idolater, reviler, drunkard, or swindler, not even to eat with such a one. For what have I to do with judging outsiders? He says, what do I have to do with judging those out in the world? Is it not those inside the church whom you are to judge? God judges those outside. Purge the evil person from among you. These are uh, strong words from Paul. And they're very clear words. People today in our culture are all about, i misquoting scripture. This drives me crazy because I hear it all the time. They want to lead you to believe that we should never judge anyone else. And they, and they quote scriptures. Judge not lest ye be judged. They quote all the favorite scriptures. That is not what Jesus taught. And that is not what Paul taught. And that is not what James taught. We were never taught to never judge. It is in fact our God-given duty to discriminate between those who are Christ followers and those who are not. For the purpose of knowing when to judge and when not to. We're absolutely instructed in Scripture to hold one another inside the church accountable. To the world, that's a completely different story. We are not to judge the world. Our job is to show love and grace to those outside the church. God, Paul says, will judge them. To those within the church, certainly we show love. We show grace. We show compassion, compassion, forgiveness, mercy. Absolutely. But we also exercise accountability. Why? Because of our love for one another within the church and our love for God. You don't let your kids do whatever they want to do. Right? You hold them accountable. Why? 
because you have nothing better to do. Of course not, because you love them. You care about their health and their safety. You care about their development. You want them to to be the best people that they can be. So you hold them accountable. It's the same thing within the church. Okay, so let's pick up our story again today in Acts chapter 5 where we see accountability being expressed within the church. This is in a frighteningly sober way, and I'll address that. And again, this is Acts chapter 5, verse 1. This is just after uh, the close of chapter 4, where we see all the members of the church selling their belongings, their possessions, their property. They're bringing the proceeds, the money to the apostles to be distributed for the ministry as needed. Okay, so let's read together chapter 5, verse 1. But a man named Ananias with his wife Sapphira sold a piece of property. And with his wife's knowledge, he kept back for himself some of the proceeds and brought only a part of it and laid it at the apostles' feet. But Peter said, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and to keep back for yourself part of the proceeds of the land? While it remained unsold, did it not remain your own? And after it was sold, was it not at your disposal? Why is it then that you've contrived this deed in your heart? You've not lied to men, but to God. When Ananias heard these words, he fell down and breathed his last. And great fear came upon all who heard it. You think so? The young men rose and wrapped him up and carried him out and buried him. Okay, the phrase kept back in verse 2 in the original Greek is the word nosfizo, which literally means to put aside for oneself in a secret or dishonest way. Okay, this was also used at the time to describe people that embezzled money, that same word. It was actually a rare Greek word. It's used in the Septuagint, the Greek Old Testament, and the story of Akan in Joshua 7.1, who received a death sentence for holding back some of the spoils from their attack on the city of Ai, spoils that were dedicated to God. And although Akan was the actual perpetrator for lying and rebelling against God's commands, his dishonesty threatened the entire a covenant community of God's people. In fact, Akan's sin led to Israel's first defeat in the land of Canaan. And so there's a significant and very important parallel with Akan's story and our story here in Acts that we shouldn't overlook. According to the original Greek, there's no mistake that Ananias kept back a portion of the proceeds from the sale of his property for himself in a a dishonest way. But that alone isn't the sin here. Okay, certainly not the keeping back the money part. His sin was the same as Akan's. Ananias lied to God, as Peter points out in verse 4. And as the Greek describes, this was done for his own dishonest gain in direct rebellion to the leading of the Holy Spirit. Look, if Ananias had kept his land and not sold it at all, or if he'd fully disclosed what he'd sold the land for and been honest about what he was giving, he probably would have been fine. The sin wasn't that he didn't give all the money to the church. Okay, what the people were doing was voluntary. Paul tells us not to give out of compulsion. This was completely voluntary. The sin was keeping some of the money back and then lying to God about it. And attempting to deceive the church leaders into thinking they were sacrificing everything that they had when they weren't. But the parallel with the incident involving Akan and the weight of it doesn't stop there. Just as Akan's sin threatened the whole community of God's people, so too did Ananias and Sapphira's sin threaten the whole community of faith in Acts chapter 4. This entire incident is bracketed in Scripture and Acts by references 
to the Spirit's power, Acts chapter 4, verses 31 and 33, and then later in chapter 5, verses 12 through 16. The Spirit of God was inextricably linked, and is today, to the unity of the fellowship, manifested in their sharing. Ananias and Sapphira, as we'll see, uh, his wife as well, abused the fellowship through their deception and thereby threatened the unity of the entire church. Okay, so just as Akan's sentence was death, so too was the fate of Ananias and Sapphira. Lying to God and disrupting the unity of the church are obviously very serious offenses, which brings us to the issue of accountability. The reason accountability is so needed is that when it is expressed biblically, it serves to prevent the need for harsh consequences. So exercising accountability within the body of Christ, within the church, is meant to be a preventative measure to stem any disunity that may arise and ultimately to prevent the cutting off of our own members because of egregious sin. Okay, I don't know many Christians that say they don't want to be accountable to God. I think that most Christians readily admit that we're supposed to be accountable to God, and we're going to talk about that more next week. But being accountable to one another is a different story because we don't like feeling as if we're being subjugated by others, particularly in this country, where being accountable is often equated with weakness. So we often avoid accountability with one another. However, again... The reason that we're to be accountable to one another is not because God wanted to establish some type of hierarchy or authority structure where some would receive preference over others. No, accountability is a mechanism that God created to help us stay in line with His Word, His will for our lives. Accountability is meant to be a system of checks and balances to keep the church healthy. And so the first expression of that within the church is accountability to one another. But generally speaking, we no longer practice much accountability in our culture because we don't like to take personal responsibility in answering to anyone other than ourselves. And this is a major contributing factor to dissolved marriages, uh, crimes of all kinds in our society, certainly undisciplined children, and on and on and on. I was reading, and I read, I made it a point to read more than one report to try and verify that this was true, so maybe it's not, but I read it in more than one news outlet, that the famous actor, Will Smith, was asked about how he and his wife disciplined their kids in an interview last year, and this was his response. He said, well, we don't do punishment. That way, the way that we deal with our kids is they are responsible for their lives. Our concept is as young as possible, Give them as much control over their lives as possible. And the concept of punishment, our experience has been, it has a little too much of a negative quality. Well, that's the point, isn't it? It's supposed to be negative. But he went on. He said, so when they do things, and you know Jaden, his son, he's done things. You can do anything you want as long as you can explain to me that, why that was the right thing to do for your life. These are little kids. Well, not so little anymore, but they were. And maybe this works for the Smith family. I have no idea. But this approach, which I fear is the approach of many today, is completely incongruous with what the Bible teaches us about raising our kids and having accountability for our lives. Completely opposite of what Scripture teaches us. Proverbs 22.6 says, Train up a child in the way he should go, and even when he is old, he will not depart from it. 
Doesn't say, let your kids do whatever they want as long as it seems right to them. Proverbs 13.24 says, whoever spares the rod hates his son, but he who loves him is diligent to discipline him. Scripture is very clear. And yet as a society, we don't want to have to answer to anyone but ourselves. But if I want my marriage to work, I have to answer to my wife. If I want this church to work, I have to answer to my leadership and to other ministers. If I want my life to work, I have to answer to God. And marriage is a great example, actually, when functioning properly of a mutually accountable relationship. My wife has every right in the world to ask me hard questions about my choices, the decisions that I make. And I have absolutely no right to get offended or snap back at her when she does. Why? Because she's my wife and we've entered into a covenant relationship. Likewise, I have every right to ask her hard questions about her choices and decisions. And she's obligated to answer with humility and honesty because she's entered into a covenant relationship with me. She has every right to know where I am and what I'm doing at all times. And it's my duty to answer with honesty and humility. And and by the way, I should be grateful when she does ask because she's holding me accountable in order to prevent the covenant from being broken. The same goes for her. If we're going to cohabitate, she has every right to expect me to be her husband and everything that goes along with that because we've entered into that covenant and the same applies to her. This is why it's not okay in God's eyes for us to live together to be intimate with each other before marriage because we're being nosfizo, to use the Greek. We're cheating the system that God created and instituted to keep us in covenant relationship. In effect, we're saying, I want all the privileges and benefits of marriage without the accountability or responsibility or sacrifice that goes along with covenant. And that is cheating God and each other. And the same is true in the church among believers. You're accountable to me. Why? Not because you owe me anything, but because you owe it to God. I'm accountable to you. Why? Because I owe it to God. We've entered into a covenant with Christ that automatically makes us members of his church, which means that we're mutually accountable to one another according to his word. And again, the purpose of accountability is to keep us in covenant relationship, not to make us miserable Okay, And the consequence for rejecting that accountability ultimately, if not mitigated first, is being cut off from the relationship. People think that excommunication from the church is some antiquated policy of the Orthodox Church that's irrelevant for today. Read Matthew 18. It is not irrelevant for today. Jesus lays out a very clear policy within the body of believers for accountability and ultimate excommunication from the body where there's no repentance for a wayward brother or sister in Christ. Excommunication under these circumstances where one refuses to submit to accountability, it's actually God's design for the church. And and it seems harsh, and it is harsh. But the purpose of excommunication is always... 
to bring restoration by way of alienation. It's the point. In other words, in Jesus' time on earth and in the time of the, the early believers, being a member of the church, a part of the body of Christ, was your entire identity. Okay? It meant everything. So much so that they sold everything that they had and they gave it to each other as there was need. In many cases, they died for each other. To be excommunicated from the body then was so severe because the offending party would be so uh, completely desperate to be reunited with the church. The idea was that he or she would, in most cases, repent of their sin to be restored back to the body. You see how that's supposed to work. The problem today is that excommunication has lost its teeth because we have churches on every corner. So if someone's required to leave their church, they just go to another church down the street. doesn't mean anything. The point is, we're to be accountable in this life and in the church. And when we reject that accountability, we risk the loss of covenant relationships, okay? We see it in Matthew 18, we see it uh, with Akan in Joshua 7, and we see it with Ananias and Sapphira here in Acts chapter 5. Crystal clear. According to the scriptures, we're to be accountable to one another. So what does that look like? It's having relationships in the church where we're open and honest with one another. Where we pray for one another, where we encourage and build each other up where we prefer one another over ourselves, and when needs be, we can ask one another those hard questions about our lives, always bathed in love and compassion and trust. That's a big one, of course. And then we answer each other with humility and honesty. And when necessary, we repent. When our offenses, our sins are brought to the surface. And you know what? It, it stops right then and there. We don't gossip. We don't continually require repentance for sin that has already been repented for. We don't demand penance or repayment. We don't hold grudges or offenses against others. No, we don't put it on Facebook. Jesus paid it all on the cross. The moment our brother or sister repents of their sin, they are forgiven. It is forgotten. According to Psalm 103.12, Isaiah 43.25, Micah 7.19, Hebrews 8.12. These passages describe how God forgives and forgets our sin. What does that mean? People say, does he literally forget? It means he treats us as if it has never happened. It never comes up again. It is gone. Right? Ephesians 4.32 says that we are to forgive just as God in Christ forgave us. So we forgive, we forget, and then we move forward in healthy covenant relationship. I hear Christians, I've talked to one not long ago, who said to me in the church, well, you know, you forgive, but you don't forget. Well, actually you do. You do forget. Because if you don't, you haven't actually forgiven that person. That's what accountability expressed scripturally looks like, okay? Now let's move ahead in our story. Start back at verse 7. After an interval of about three hours, his wife came in, not knowing what had happened. And Peter said to her, tell me whether you sold the land for so much. This is accountability. Peter's saying, hey, be honest with me. 
how much did you sell the land for? And unfortunately, like her husband, Sapphira chooses to lie to the Holy Spirit and to the church, and therefore she shares her husband's fate. Let's continue. And she said, yes, for so much. But Peter said to her, how is it that you have agreed together to test the Spirit of the Lord? Behold, the feet of those who have buried your husband are at the door, and they will carry you out. Immediately she fell down at his feet and breathed her last. When the young men came in, they found her dead, and they carried her out and buried her beside her husband. And great fear came upon the whole church and upon all who heard these things. Yeah, I guess so. That fear is a healthy fear. This is respect. It's reverence. It is awe. It's that kind of fear that we would do well to recognize when it comes to how we interact with God and with the church. Are you going to keel over dead? I hope not. I don't think so. <laughs> the word church in verse 11 is the Greek word ecclesia. It's the first time that Luke uses this word in scripture to refer to the gathering of believers. Okay, but people get upset at this passage because of the severity of the judgment. And to be sure, just as many uh, death sentences, maybe this will make you feel better, by God associated with the Ten Commandments were later relegated to lesser sentences, uh, so too with this incident, okay? God was clearly making a statement to the early church, lying to the Holy Spirit and undermining the unity of the body are very serious offenses, and yet we obviously don't have a church members falling over dead every time we sin in the church today, right? The point is to grasp the seriousness of the offense and understand that God is a holy God and his bride is to be loved and cared for and nurtured and protected and respected at all times. Okay? We cannot be dishonest with God and his church and expect our lives to be full of blessings. There must be a healthy fear for God and for his commands. Point A, if you're keeping an outline, accountability equals respect, a healthy fear of God. Okay? If you've ever cleared a piece of land or cut up a, uh, some firewood with a chainsaw, you understand that there is simultaneously a tremendous appreciation for the tool that you're holding as you work, and at the same time, a very healthy fear and respect, there had better be, for what that tool can do to you if you handle it too casually. When handled properly, a chainsaw is an amazing tool where two men in the past would have to saw back and forth by hand to cut a piece of wood, which took a tremendous amount of time and uh, really hard, time-consuming work. One person can now wield a chainsaw and work circles around two people with a cross-cut handsaw. And yet, if treated too casually, if, if they don't fear and respect that chainsaw, it can very easily end you. All right? That kind of fear is healthy, and, and it may well extend your life. All right? God is love. He's compassionate, patient, full of grace, but he's also holy and righteous and just. And it is really important that we understand that and hold a healthy fear for the awesome nature of our Creator God. And one way to do that is to submit to the accountability that he has designed for us within the church with humility and honesty. And that applies to every single one of us. And listen, I know it's been abused. Oh, Lord, help us. It has been abused in the church for centuries. 
people, people trying to interpret the Bible literally in places where it's allegory or metaphor, or it wasn't meant to be interpreted literally in some place. That's why we ended up with slavery, all kinds of, of child abuse, okay, pastors who, who, who have a God complex, who treat people like they're underlings. All of that is sick perversion of the scripture, right? We're certainly not talking about that. We're talking about true biblical accountability. It's a mutual thing. All right, verse 12, let's continue. Now many signs and wonders were regularly done among the people by the hands of the apostles, and they were all together in Solomon's portico. It's worth pointing out here that the church was meeting in Solomon's portico. This was part of the, uh, the temple complex. The temple wasn't a building. It was a complex of buildings. It was easier to think about that way. There was lots of different structures as a part of it. And this was a covered area uh, within the outer wall of the temple. And, and there are those today who try their best to build a case with me that the early church only met in homes, and therefore all churches today should be home churches. But the truth is the early church met and worshipped and fellowshiped and received teaching in many places. They met in homes, they met at the synagogue, they met inside, they met outside. Uh, in one case, at least, they met in a school. Okay? So the point is the church met regularly at whatever facility or piece of property or home that could accommodate them. And that was often the synagogue or the temple or the outer court, okay? Which was a building obviously set aside for religious purposes. So there's certainly no inherent scriptural issues if it bothers you. I don't think it does or you wouldn't be here. With the church meeting in an established building outside of someone's home, okay? Let's keep reading. 13. None of the rest dared join them, but the people held them in high esteem. Okay, so there were those who had no interest in being a part of what God was doing. Uh, so there was this sort of interesting dichotomy happening where many people were drawn to the church by what God was doing among the congregation. And yet there were many others who wanted nothing uh, to do with it. And, and really nothing has changed there, has it? As Bible a scholar John Stott says, The presence of the living God, whether manifest through preaching or miracles or both, is alarming to some and appealing to others. Some are frightened away while others are drawn to the faith. Okay? And then finally we'll finish up uh, reading through uh, verse 16 where we see that accountability, this is point B on your outline, equals reward. Okay? Accountability equals reward. So let's read uh, 14 through 16. And more than ever, believers were added to the Lord multitudes of both men and women so that they even carried out the sick into the streets and laid them on cots and mats that as Peter came by at least his shadow might fall on some of them. The people also gathered from the towns around Jerusalem bringing the sick and those afflicted with unclean spirits and they were all healed. Can you imagine? First of all verse 14 says more than ever believers were being added to the Lord. We already saw that 3,000 were added to the church at Pentecost. And then more than 5,000 after the healing of the, the lame man. And here we see more than ever multitudes of both men and women being added to the church. That means many, many thousands were coming to the church regularly. When we make ourselves accountable, obedient to the Lord and the church, the sky is the limit. And you understand when I say the church, I'm not talking about the organization, the, the administration of the church. I'm talking about to one another, right? The sky's the limit. 
as far as what he can accomplish through us. The key is that we're doing it his way and not our way. And that's the whole point of accountability. Imagine what your life could be like. What the church, what this church and the ministry could be like if we just fully submitted our lives to his will. What could that be like? Well, it's not actually very hard to imagine at all. Because all you have to do is open up the book of Acts and read it. This is what it could be like. The church has great and awesome and frightening power to carry out God's will available to it by the Holy Spirit within us. We just have to be willing to be led by Him, to rely on Him, rather than our own cleverness, our own creativity, our own talent, our own personalities, our own gifts. Those are tools that He used. That leading by Him often comes by way of mutual accountability through others. That's how we grow. That's how we're discipled. It's how we become more like Christ. It isn't just this, we're in a cave in Tibet in some transcendent state becoming more like God. No, it's worked out in a messy, hard sometimes. Sometimes it's ugly. Sometimes it's really beautiful relationships that we call the church. That's how it happens. That's how we become more Christ-like. He works through each of us into each other's lives. And it gets all wonky sometimes. That's okay. Because when there's grace and compassion, as long as we're following His Word, mutually accountable to one another, He accomplishes His will in our life. So ask yourself, am I allowing myself to be accountable to my spouse? You can start there. To my family. To my parents to my brothers and sisters in Christ within the church? Or am I trying to do this my own way? Do I fear God with a healthy, reverent respect? Or is my walk with Him and are my relationships in the church simply a, a casual affair? Just one of many aspects in my life. Because if you want your life to flourish, if you want to be fulfilled, if you want to see your effectiveness as a Christian multiply dramatically... If you want to see the church change the culture that we live in like it did in Acts, we have to be all in. There can't be any half commitments, not in our relationship to God or to the church, to one another, individually and as a collective. And accountability is one very necessary step in that direction, okay? Let's pray.